Hopefully you've been paying attention as we've been, as we've been doing this. <laughs> and as you're paying attention, you have an idea <clears throat> and a fairly good grasp on the context of what's going on from week to week. And I want to remind you that the whole point of the book of Luke is, here we have this man who has traveled with Paul and his entourage, Luke, writing to a Roman official who he calls Theophilus, and he is writing to him for this specific purpose, to give him certainty about the things that he had been taught about Jesus. If, if we get nothing else by the time we get to the end of the book of Luke, hopefully we absolutely know who Jesus was, who he is, and what he has done. And that's the whole point of writing this. And context is so important in determining our interpretation and our understanding of Scripture. I say that because the text of Scripture we come to today, really the first four verses of Luke chapter 21, has been one of the most abused, I would say, passages of Scripture in terms of being taken out of context. And I'm going to help us this morning to understand the context. Context simply just means this, church. Where, where the passage of Scripture falls and who it's being written to and all these things have to be taken into account. And so where this passage of Scripture falls really helps us to understand why it's exactly where it's at. And so we see a big shift. I want you to look at verse 45 of chapter 20. We see a big shift, and I appreciated Aaron last week as he was preaching through this, pointing this out, but there is a big shift that happens in verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus is still there on the temple grounds. Jesus has, has, been, has been going kind of back and forth where for the religious leaders, remember, they've had several attempts at him to try to trap him there at the temple. He's been going back and forth with them. They've tried to trap him on the paying of taxes. Remember, they, they say, who, who do we pay taxes to? Should we pay it to Rome or not? They've tried to trap him about the resurrection. The Sadducees have come to do that. And, and Jesus has handled every one of their traps in magnificent fashion. And we see this big transition now in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus now starts talking to his disciples. <clears throat> Jesus starts addressing his followers. He's going to do it in front of this large group of people, but, but understand now, Jesus is going to take the last hours that he has before his death, and he is going to give final words to his disciples. You ever gotten final words from somebody? You ever gotten final words? Um, final words usually happen, do you remember back whenever your firstborn, you left your firstborn with the babysitter for the first time? And, and I, mean, I mean, how many of you just like had it all spelled out? How many of you men were like dragging your wife out? Like, they'll be fine, right? Final words are really important, okay? And so Jesus is going to address four big things with his, disciple and his, with his disciples in his final words. One, he is going to pronounce judgment on the religious leaders, and that, we're going to see that today. He's going to tell them what is to come I can't tell you how many times people in the church have said to me, Pastor Dan, when are you going to preach on prophecy? Hey, I got good news for you. Next week, we get to the prophetic section of Luke, okay? So you better be sure, all of you who have asked me to preach prophecy, you better be sure to get your rear ends here for that, okay? We're going to get to the prophecy section. 
Not only is he going to do those two things, but he's going to establish the Lord's Supper, which we just talked about and which we just practiced ourselves. He's going to establish that with his disciples. And the fourth thing that he's going to do, and we don't have much of a record of that in the book of Luke, but we see it in John, and it's one of the most precious things our Lord does, is he prays over his disciples. He prays over them before he leaves them. And so as I said, our context is really important this morning. And so I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that I want, to, I want us to see this morning, and then we're going to talk about this context. Verse 45 of chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greeting in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. And raise your hand if you've heard this passage preached, like we all need to give until we have nothing. Got news for you you heard the wrong message from this passage of Scripture. Because this passage of Scripture, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, is Jesus' exhibit A on what he has just said at the end of chapter 20. It's his exhibit A. It's like, oh, here's a prime example of what I just told you about here. And if you look at the context, verses 45 through 47 are a pronouncement of judgment and condemnation on the religious leaders. Then you have this little vignette where, you, where Jesus is sitting there in the temple grounds with his disciples and they see this, this act that probably happened more than just one time that day. Some poor widow coming and putting in a little bit of money into the offering box in the temple. And then look at verse 5, which we'll get to next week. And while some were speaking of the temple... This all revolves around what's taking place at the temple here. This all revolves around. Jesus is not at the last minute just throwing in, and oh, by the way, here's how we should give our offerings. He's using the offering as an illustration. So let's go back to verses 45 through 47. I know Aaron covered these well, but I, but I wanted to just remind us of the judgment that Jesus pronounces. And, and here's why. He, and remember... This is in the hearing of all his disciples. And so the religious leaders are still there too because they're looking for something to entrap him. And now Jesus is just going to absolutely fry them in front of his disciples. Verse 46, beware of the scribes, the religious leaders, mostly the ones who were Pharisees. They like to walk around in long robes. Now, we're not talking about what you do in the morning with your cup of coffee or your can of Mountain Dew in your house. We're talking about these religious leaders, these Pharisees specifically, who under command of Scripture were supposed to put tassels on their robes to remind them of God's commands. They went the extra step because they were far more religious and more superior and they had to let others know their tassels on their robes were a lot longer. If your tassel was three inches, their tassel was six. And it showed. And they walked around. And I can just imagine the average Pharisee just kind of flung his robes around a little bit when he came in and did this so that you could see just how long his tassels were. 
Because after all, if you have longer tassels, you love God more. And before we laugh at that, and before we think that's really weird, we're the same way. I dress more modestly than that person. I must love the Lord more. Did you ever stop to think that maybe that young lady had never been taught how to dress modestly? Or, I attend church more than, than, than other people do. Do you ever stop to think that maybe they got sick kids at home? Do you ever stop to think that maybe there's a reason that they can't get here every Sunday? But we all like to put our little tassels on our robes, don't we? And he doesn't stop there. Not only do they like to walk around in long robes, they love greetings in the marketplaces. I love this one. Long greetings in the marketplaces. They wanted to be recognized. So imagine this. You walk up and you see a fellow Pharisee in the marketplace and it is, Hello, my brother, my beloved Joshua. How are you? How are things with your flock? My flock is doing really well. What's the number of your flock these days? Oh, ours is just booming. And they love these long blessings. And they, and they, and they go out of their way to, to, to show each other this attention and this notoriety because they wanted it from the common man as well. Can you imagine walking into a church where the pastors only talk to themselves, amongst themselves? How many of you have ever been a part of a church where the church leadership sat up on the, on the platform? You ever, been a, you ever been to one of those kind of churches? They all sit up there and they look down at you like, what are you doing here? And stay back behind the pulpit because after all, we don't want you to contaminate what's happening up here. It's kind of what the attitude that the Pharisees had. Which leads into the third thing that Jesus said. They want the best seats in the synagogue. They want the, they, and they want the places of honor at feasts. Pharisees, when they showed up to the synagogue, they were special places for Pharisees. They sat on the elevated seats where everyone could see them. And just imagine what Pharisees would do when the law is being read. They would sit there, make sure their tassels would, were seen, and they would stroke their long beards, and they would... But when they really wanted to nod, and, and if a Pharisee would have, would he, he would break decorum to say an amen in a synagogue service, is whenever they would start talking about oral traditions. I mean, the law is good and everything, but let's talk about oral traditions. Let's talk about the things we really like, like the laws that we've made. Let's talk about those. They wanted to be seen and honored. All these things that Jesus has just pointed out to his disciples are all things that feed, feed pride, aren't they? They all feed pride. They had a desire to be honored and respected better than the average people they were called to serve. But then he really lays them low in verse 47. It's not enough that they're just pompous windbags that want to be seen. It's not enough that they just want the attention. They're harming people. You see it there in verse 47, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make long prayers. They devour widows' houses. Not only are they prideful, but they're greedy. And make no mistake here, I'm a firm believer that every single one of us that is a part of the human race, we wrestle with pride in some form or fashion. And that pride manifests itself in a variety of sins in our lives. 
For instance, if you're a control freak that wants to have things done in a certain way, you're a proud person because you want it done your way. It's not just that there's a right way, it's, it's your way. If you're a person that, that, that can't go out and without you know, a half hour in front of the mirror to make sure that everybody looks at you just a certain way, you, you've got a vanity issue, you've got a pride issue. We all wrestle with pride in certain forms or fashions. And, and, and their pride led them to be greedy because, after all, if you are this important, if you're that self-important, then people ought to be taking care of you after all, right? And they're devouring widows' houses. But I want you to understand, they're taking advantage and hurting the very people that they're to be protecting. They're taking advantage and hurting the very people that they are charged with protecting. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. I don't know exactly what that means, but I take Jesus' words to heart here. He's got to be right. You're with me there, church? There's going to be a greater judgment for them. And as he is saying that, he looks up and he looks around the temple grounds. And several weeks ago, I showed you a, a diagram and a picture of the temple. And in that large outer courtyard, that courtyard where the women were allowed to come in, there were 13 different offering boxes stationed around in there. We believe that those offering boxes were either mounted on the walls or that some of them were freestanding. And they, they were large collection boxes, and at the top of them, they were kind of shaped like a, like a funnel, a horn, okay? So, so think of a large, big, like, you know, brass instrument that has this funnel and horn on it, maybe, you know, like a, like a tuba or something like that, okay? And it's turned so that when you put your money in, it goes down that funnel and it ends up in the box, Okay? They were probably fashioned out of metal. So when, when you have this metal and you have coins being thrown into metal, it's probably pretty noisy, right? And, and what the situation that we see here in verse 21 is, is you see the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now that word there, rich, doesn't mean like less Wexner rich, okay? Rich there means just simply this. They have enough to live on and they're doing quite well. Okay? They're comfortable. Okay? I would dare to say that most of us, under that definition, are rich. They're not condemned by Jesus for their giving. Jesus never once, look at the passage, never once says they should have given more. He's just observing that they're giving. Okay? So when a rich person gives, he has a heavier coin, he has a bigger coin, it's going to obviously draw a little more attention when it goes in the offering box, right? Okay? Cha-ching, right? And as Jesus is watching, here comes a common sight. This isn't the only poor widow that's at the temple that day. And this poor widow shows up, verse 2, and she puts in two small copper coins, okay? 
So you've got, to get, you've got people who have enough, that have enough material possessions, they, can, they, without even thinking, can put their money in, and you have this woman who's needy, and the, by the definition of poor here, it's the only time this word is used in our New Testament there, in verse 2, the word that's translated poor, it means this, she didn't have enough material resources, Okay? So in doing, in putting these coins in the offering, she's not going to be able to buy food. She's not going to be able to take care of her living in doing this, okay? The word copper coins there literally means thin, small. They're worth practically nothing. They're worth a 164th of a day's wage. This week I went and looked up what the average, and I didn't believe this, but it was published by the U.S. US Bureau of Labor, so it's got to be right, right? (laughs) They say the average hourly salary is $30 an hour. That's what they say. That's not what I say. That's what they say. So if you take 8 times 30, that's how many dollars, church? 240, for those of you who are mathematically challenged. You take 164th of that, it's $3.75. This woman has less than $4 in her wallet, if you want to put it in today's living, in day's standards, and she takes that less than $4 and she puts it in the offering box. And let's understand why Jesus is so worked up here. Jesus, Jesus is so worked up because the wicked men who are supposed to be the religious men, the the men who are supposed to be in charge of making sure that there's pure religion in Israel, these men have so corrupted the system that literally they're taking advantage of this poor widow and her last money so that they can live as extravagantly as they're living. They should have been the ones taking care of this widow. The law prescribed ways that they could take care of this widow, but they're fleecing this widow, and Jesus has worked up. And I want to submit to you, it's much like the evil being done today in our churches all across America. Joey talked about his background in charismatic churches. One of the big characteristics of charismatic churches is is they are big on their offerings, are they not? Somebody's got to afford Mr. Dollar his planes, in his mansions. Somebody's got to afford Mr. Osteen his way of living. And it's not going to be the wealthy. It's going to be the widows who he badgers every week to mail in. And he'll pray over your prayer requests. And then he'll cash your checks gladly. You know, we live in a country And we live in a nation that's been blessed by God. We are very wealthy people. I know we're getting taxed terribly, and I know gas is expensive, but every one of us was able to at least afford to put a little gas in our car and get to church today, weren't we? And when you got men and women who stand in front of large congregations and TV screens and they, they promise you God's blessing and they don't deliver on it just so you'll put money in an offering plate, we got a problem, Houston. No wonder Jesus says they're going to receive the greater condemnation. And I would submit to you that it should anger us and it should repulse us. That, you want to get angry about something? That's something to get angry about right there. Is the way that, that 
organized religion today is preying on the weak and the vulnerable. It's no wonder that in just a few verses, Jesus will predict the destruction of the very temple that, that, is, that is the place where all this is being collected. In just a few short verses, Jesus is going to say, there's coming a day where there's not going to be one stone standing on another stone here. Because that temple was meant to represent the pure, true worship of God, and it had been so corrupt, and it had been so apostatized, that all it was was a money-making endeavor. Jesus offers us some commentary in verses 3 and 4. And if you want to sum it up this way, he says this, less is more. Less is more. So in verse 3, he uses a different word for poor. The word there he uses for poor in verse 3 is, I tell you, this poor woman, to the point, that word poor there means to the point of being a beggar. She's to the point of being a beggar. This widow has given more than, than the wealthy have given. And this is where preachers have totally misapplied this passage, and they have told you, and they have told me, and they are telling, they're telling the elderly in our country, and they're telling the poor in our country, just keep giving, 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 give till it hurts, give till it hurts, give till it hurts. And I submit to you, God gave them some money so they could live on, why are we trying to steal it from them? Am I telling you not to give? No. There's a biblical command for that, and Jesus is not giving, dealing with that here. There are plenty of other scriptures for that. And what Jesus is saying here, and he's not commending this type of giving. Nowhere in this passage does he say, that woman is the example of how you give. No, that's not what he's saying. He's simply using it as an illustration. And he's pointing out that the money that the rich were giving should have been used to take care of this woman. That's what he's pointing out. Because now this woman is giving and she's reduced to the point that she's a beggar. I want you to listen to what God's law, in fact, I want you to look at it with me. We don't have much time. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19. After all, Pharisees were charged with what? And what did they pride themselves on? The knowledge of what? God's word in the law, right? They should have known, and I I submit to you, they did know these verses. Look at what God said in Leviticus chapter 19 with me, verses 9 and 10. This is early on. This is under Moses, okay? This is what he said. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, you're going to reflect who I am, people of Israel. You're going to take care of the poor. Did the Pharisees know that, church? Did they require that of other people? Were they taking care of the poor? Absolutely not. Go to chapter 25, verse 35. This is the part of the law that dealt with the Sabbath, the the Sabbath year. And in verse 35, 
God says this to his people, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. To the point of the Pharisees should have been taking this woman into their house. But what they're concerned about is that she drops every little last bit of money that she has into the offering box. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Still, Moses' law. Deuteronomy chapter 15. How many of you get upset about poverty in our country? How many of you get worked up about that? This is what God said about poverty in Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. God says this, there's always going to be poor people. Because of situation, because of calamity, because of, of, of unfortunate things, you know, bad health, whatever. There's always going to be poor. So, so you as my people, Israel, what are you supposed to do? You're to open your hand to those people. You're to be generous to them. Give to the needy and the poor. The Pharisees prided themselves on a knowledge of God's word. They especially prided themselves on a knowledge of the law, but they also prided themselves on a knowledge of the rest of the Old Testament too. And so I want you to look at a couple illustrations of where God gives them counsel about how you take care of the poor. Turn with me to the Psalms, Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Excuse me, Psalm, Psalm 146, Psalm 146. The psalmist here is praising God, verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Skip down to verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. So understand this, if the Pharisees wanted to be godlike, what would they have been doing with this poor woman? They'd have been taking care of her needs, not robbing her of her last money. Skip over to Proverbs 22. Just a couple more I want to show you. Proverbs 22. The Pharisees were living on the edge because they knew the Proverbs as well. And they had to know Proverbs 22, 22, and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. And that is exactly what they were doing. They were robbing the poor because they were poor and they had no one to defend them, right? And look what happens. What does God say in verse 23? For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Rob of life those who rob them. I want you to understand what's happening here. The religious leaders, the self-righteous of that day, and make no mistake, you and I can be ultra-religious and self-righteous, but the religious leaders of that day were setting aside God's word that they knew, and they were saying this, no, here's what we do to feed our greed. 
And that is the epitome of self-righteous legalism. When you get to the point that you, you see God's word, you say you're affirming God's word, but then you do this. Because I need this, I have to set aside God's word, and I'm going to go with my own tradition, my own code. And make no mistake, we could be guilty of doing the same thing. They're holding others to a standard that they would not hold themselves to. How do we respond to that? I'm so glad you asked. How do we respond to that? Well, I think there's four ways, as I was thinking this through, that we respond to this. I think there ought to be two, two things, two emotions, whenever we see it happening today. When we see the religious self-righteous exploiting those who they should be caring for, it ought to make us angry and it ought to make us sorrowful. It ought to make us angry and ought to make us sorrowful. Angry enough that, secondly, we ought to warn those who are being taken advantage of. A while back, I had an opportunity to clean out the room of a dear saint who was a member of this church, who hadn't attended this church probably in the last 20 years because of health. An opportunity to clean out her room at the rest home where she, where she had passed away. And I was cleaning out her stuff, and literally, honestly, I'll be honest with you, it was one of those deals where I just took in boxes and just emptied drawers. And You ever done that? Like, we'll figure out the mess later. As we were going through the boxes of mess, and I'm talking like, and, and I know, None of the old people in our church would ever do this, and maybe, and I'm not picking on old people, but old people have a way of just hiding stuff, right? Envelopes and stuff. And as you're going through this stuff, I was sick as to how many places were soliciting this woman who had nothing for money, and how many places she was sending what little money she had. It's not a loving thing to let these people continue to send their money away. <laughs> the loving thing to do is to warn them. Is it not, church? The loving thing is to warn them and say, no, be discerning. Don't, don't give your money to these people. <laughs> don't, don't fund their cause any longer. They're taking advantage of you. That's the second way we respond to that. We warn those who are being taken advantage of. And we encourage family and friends to be discerning to who they give to. Just because a person opens up a Bible and references a Bible verse on TV doesn't mean that they're worthy of your money, church. Be discerning. Be discerning. But I think there's something that hits us all in the heart, the third way we need to respond. We all need to humbly reject the self-righteousness that we all battle daily. Because if we don't battle the self-righteousness, we're going to be just like these Pharisees. Because we all have a propensity to justify ourselves and our self-righteousness. And the, and the way that we get that way is we set aside the Word of God. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were setting aside the Word of God. Yeah, I know that it says that in the Mosaic Law, and I know that it says that in Proverbs, but here's the thing, we need more money. So we're going to do it this way. 
there's always a danger in setting God's word aside. Fourthly, we need a purpose to care for those who are being hurt by religious self-righteous people. We need to actually care for them. And, and, and here's something that the church really isn't good at in our country because, after all, we have the government to support us. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? Who is charged in the Word of God with caring for the widows, church? Are we charged with driving them down to the Social Security Administration to make sure that they're getting all their benefits, or are we charged with caring for them, church? We're charged with caring for them. And we need to take that seriously. And I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but here's the thing. Things ain't getting better financially in our country. Who's going to take care of the widows and those who are, who are financially disadvantaged if we as a church don't? That's how we respond to this. Jesus gives his final condemnation to his disciples of these religious leaders. And I think of it this way. Jesus knows he's leaving. And he knows this. He knows that these religious leaders are going to be constantly hounding his disciples. And he wants to remind them and point out to them just how much they need to be avoided. And how much they don't need to be listened to. And it's still true in our day. You hung with me. We made it to 1204. I think we need to praise God one more time before we leave. Do you agree with me? Hey, P. Fitz, can you get the, can you get the band up here? 